Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails done, outfit stunner, and my skin. I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM, let's create. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a show about things falling apart and how to maybe put them back together uh, a little bit better than they were before. I am Robert Evans, uh, and with me this week is a guest I'm very excited about, uh, Chris Begley, author of The Next Apocalypse, The Art and Science of Survival. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Now, Chris, before we get into the meat of our discussion, I I have to talk about what you do for a living, because for years and years, it was my job to go around the world. I, I talk to people on pretty much every continent about their different interesting jobs. So I've, I've talked, interviewed everybody from like brothel workers in Nevada to Iraqi uh, counterterrorism special forces in Iraq. And you have probably the coolest job title of anybody I've met. You're an underwater archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. How did you, um, how did you, I mean, was that, was it just kind of like, were you kind of laser focused on that goal or was it more you were interested in archaeology and you loved diving and so the two just kind of made sense together? Yeah, well, I started out as a what I now call a terrestrial archaeologist, you know, working on land as most people do and worked for years in Central America. Honduras was my mm-hmm. focus, as you saw in the book. Yeah. Uh, but other other places, uh, 
uh, nearby as well. And really it was about, I would say, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, I wanted to just branch out a little bit from that. And one of the things that uh, that all archaeologists have seen is that, you know, there are certain things that really just aren't as uh, explored as other things. And one was all of the archaeological resources underwater. I mean, we hear about underwater archaeology or maritime archaeology in the Mediterranean, right? You know, mm-hmm. Roman shipwrecks and all that. Uh, but there are big chunks of the world where we've done very little to see what's out there, you know? And one other interesting thing about that is there are many different things you could look at underwater, but often we look at shipwrecks Mm -hmm. and shipwrecks are different from regular archeological sites because, you know, shipwreck is a moment in time that all happened in, uh, in one instance. And so when we're looking at that kind of archeological site, we see this snapshot that we don't see when we look at a place that was occupied over hundreds of years. So, you know, so, that, yeah, so that wasn't my focus, but it became uh, sort of uh, somewhere I wanted to go as I learned more about it. And one of the things I find really interesting, the, 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 the basic thrust of your book is that the way in which we think about civilizations falling or collapsing or, or how, however you, you know, mm-hmm. the ways in which folks tend to discuss that when we're talking about the Maya or the Romans um, is, is very different from what archaeologists who tend to study these cultures, how they tend to perceive of, of what you might more accurately call a decline or, or you know, the, a decentralization or whatever. I think there's a number of terms that we could use, but yeah. these ideas that like you have these civilizations and then they suddenly fall apart um, are not really based in rigorous historical analysis, usually. Um, there's some cases, as, as you go uh, into the book. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm interested in that because you're kind of coming at from a, a very rigorous historical standpoint in this book, um, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on, on this show in a more contemporary sense. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering how the idea to write this sort of came together because you you started it before the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, That's right. that had an impact on the book. It's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, on, uh, all everything. over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I was, um, one of the things that I do is teach uh, wilderness survival courses. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I don't do that as frequently as some people that, that sort of dedicate themselves uh, to that do, but, uh, but, uh, but I do it fairly frequently. And um, it became obvious to me over time that people w- were taking these courses, not just to learn how to deal with being lost out in the wilderness, which is sort of mm-hmm. was my vision. What do you do if you unexpectedly have to spend a night out in the woods or, or two or three? Um, they were really thinking about what do I do when things fall apart? How do I take care of myself? How do I take care of my family using these skills that you could use in a situation where things had fallen apart. And that sort of oriented me towards the, the, the fact that, you know, people were worrying about the future. I mean, I could see it. I could see it in my students at the university. I could see it, you know, in the people's faces at the supermarket. Uh, you know, there was something going on there that was, um, uh, that was concerning people. And a lot of it had to do with climate change. And that I think was, uh, was the focus initially for me writing this. Um, because what I saw was, uh, you know, sort of uh, the, the prepper community and survivalist community 
looking at things that really seemed to be short-term and didn't at all focus on what we really saw historically. So I think that my um, my initial motive to motivation to write this was really uh, just seeing uh, this concern that was that was growing among people about what the future is going to look like. And then, of course, COVID hit, and that that uh, that really brought all this to the to the forefront. And are there any specific ways in your mind that you you can you kind of think on how COVID altered? what you were what you were writing or how you conceived of what you were writing like once you you know you you have this kind of vision that's inspired by the things that you're seeing and hearing particularly mm-hmm. in these wilderness survival courses and then as you get started we have this horrible horrible plague hit and a number yeah. of 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 things start to happen very quickly how does that kind of alter the trajectory of what you're writing yeah i guess the you know the the there were some just sort of practical logistical things obviously mm-hmm. Right. Uh, some things that I it intended to do or ways that I'd hoped to interact with folks in the course of interviewing people for the book or writing it, you know, wasn't going to be possible. Uh, but in terms of thinking about how things happen, the big thing for me was um, how it became politicized so quickly. You know, that was, um, you know, in the... Um, you know, you know, well, now you see all of the memes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the zombie movies where half the population doesn't believe they're zombies or something. Yeah, you know, that yeah. was never really on the radar, at least not on my radar mm-hmm. um, before. And so now, um, um, you know, it is because clearly not only do these things happen and then you have a group of people that are dealing with it. Uh, you have obviously the dynamics within the group, which, which of course we knew, but to see it play out in this way, in this uh, sort of dramatic way that really altered the course of history. I mean, the pandemic could have turned out, uh, you know, differently, mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't. And part of the reason that it didn't was because of the way folks reacted to it. And I'm I'm wondering because a, a part a chunk of your career and a big chunk of this book is kind of looking at in places like Honduras where these these civilizations entered decline and in some cases it was very sharp like within a fairly short period of time 90% of the population leaves or you know uh is, yeah. is deceased um and you you see like the crumbling of a lot of these governmental institutions and whatnot that had had organized life for a while you see the pretty significant migrations um, is there any ways in which kind of the last two years as an archaeologist has it changed or informed how you were thinking about um, these places that you'd been you'd been studying and these moments in history that you'd been studying for so long? Yeah, in some ways, it brings some of it into a little sharper focus. For instance, you know, one of the things that that uh, archaeologists had long talked about was that during these declines or these collapses that it's uneven. It's not mm-hmm. equal for everybody. It's not uh, equal over space and time. And certainly depending on your position in society, um, there's different ways in which uh, it it uh, it plays out for you. Um, you know, and that's something that we see. We see it from, um, you know, access to uh, vaccines to, um well, I mean, even things like, uh, you know, if we think about folks that are unvaccinated now, there's a, you know, a chunk of those people that are uh, doing it for a sort of political reasons or other sure. ideological reasons. But there's also a big uh, uh, 
a big group of those folks that are doing it because history shows that they should be wary of Mm -hmm. anything that uh, society tries to do to them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have these, uh, these things playing out for different ways for, um, you know, people from different regions of the country or political orientations or race or ethnicity or, um, you know, a whole variety of things. And so, Seeing how uneven it was, the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, makes me think that, you know, it, it certainly was that way then. Uh, the other thing that we see when we look archaeologically is that it's these big structures or systems that collapse that really is the collapse. Mm-hmm. And the things that cause it initially, whether it's, I don't know, deforestation or drought or warfare or even a natural disaster of some sort, um, that really it's uh, the way people respond to those and the way these uh, systems deal with those changes that really creates the, the, the problems that you see later on. And we can see that now, for instance, one of the things that we're talking a lot now about is uh, supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is a result of COVID, but it's not a direct result. I mean, it's not because the crews on the ships or at the ports or truck drivers have uh, um, are sick. It's because of the ways in which all of this disrupted things. And especially when we get these really efficient but inflexible systems like a lot of our shipping system was, um, these disruptions result in uh, really big changes. Uh, So, you know, you have these huge ships that can only dock at a few ports. Once that gets backed up, you can't really shift and adjust. And so that's, uh, I think for me, just it, it, a lot of it is seeing it play out where we see the fact that we have something that sets it all off, but then we have the the response of the system or the structure that really creates the 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 day to day impact. The following is a high five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie. I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over twelve hundred games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Whoa! I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. 
Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. I suspect a big part of kind of why we conceive popularly of, of quote-unquote collapses in the past is based on, as you talk about extensively in your book, the way in which we look at it kind of in fiction. And in fiction, it's nearly always like the societal equivalent of a bullet in the head, right? You, the zombie yeah. plague is out, and in a couple of days, everything's fallen apart. Yeah. And the point that you make in this is that it's probably, I mean, this isn't exactly how you phrase, but it's probably better to look at it kind of like it's like a tumor or something where the 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 things are set in motion that are going to lead to to things falling apart much much um at a point before a lot of people probably would have noticed it you know the yeah. the problem can be too far gone um before it's really obvious um and we yeah 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 no, I, I think that's that's a good point and that's the that's really something that you know even uh with covid uh, it, it it shows that right mm-hmm. um you know the 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 problems are not only the existence or the appearance of this virus, but you know first of all, how did it appear? And that has to do with um, you know decreasing habitat for wild animals and the proximity of human populations to animals. And then we have uh, increased uh, sort of uh, uh, communication and travel, which you know is not a bad thing, obviously. Sure. Uh, but it is going to change uh, the way in which these things spread. Uh, but then we have the way that we divide ourselves up into nation states and the way in which we have, you know, economic systems that are working in certain ways. So, you know, the vaccine gets here, but not there and, and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, that I think is at the heart of it. You have these things that have been, set in place, you have these parameters in, uh, in which you're going to have to react. And they really set 
um, uh, the stage for what's going to happen. You know, you have, it's like looking backwards four or five moves in chess to see how did we get in this situation? It's not just because of that last move. It's because of the last 10 moves. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things uh, you bring up that I like is that if you're looking for kind of a historical example of a collapse that that most mirrors the way we tend to look at it in fiction, it would probably be what happened to the indigenous population of, of particularly like North America yeah. um, after the arrival of colonizers, which was by a lot of accounts, by like 90% of the population dead within a fairly short span of time, primarily from disease. This This really rapid and cataclysmic um, um, shock, but also at the same time, as much as it does seem to mirror some of our, you know, kind of fictional depictions of, of viral outbreaks or other sort of, of, of societal calamities, um, the ways in which people survived don't really in any meaningful way mirror the, our, our kind of popular fictional depiction of like who makes it out of that sort of situation, you know, the, the, the strapping military veteran with a rifle and a stockpile of food or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, I, I would say that certainly having these skills to keep yourself sure. alive is important. And it is true that if you don't make it through the first 30 days, you're not going to make it through the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the way people survive outside of a few days, perhaps uh, when they're dealing with some of these, uh, what we would think of as survival situations uh, is as a community. I mean, mm-hmm. we see that with, uh, uh, you know, when we look at the the Native American history in North America, you know, uh, even as populations and entire groups were being uh, decimated by these diseases, sometimes 75% of a village uh, in a single winter from a wave or waves of disease even in the, in the face of that, they reconstituted themselves as communities, mm-hmm. sometimes um, multi-ethnic or multicultural communities. I mean, there was a whole variety of ways in which people uh, regrouped. And I think that that, you know, that was the message. And, you know, part of the, uh, this image of, you know, grabbing your bug out bag and heading out to the hills is um, it just, doesn't work, uh, yeah. you know, and, and the, the, the stockpiling, you know, as well. Um, and so, yeah, when we look archaeologically, you know, we always see communities. Yeah, and that's something we really try to encourage people to do on this show, where obviously some amount of disaster preparation is, is not just helpful, but is, I think, kind of morally necessary, if it's at all financially feasible for you. You yeah. know, it, it is, you are it is absolutely the right thing to do to try to have two, three weeks of, of relatively storable food, some water, um, you know, some other emergency supplies. But kind of beyond that, as you said, that first like 30 days, if you actually want not just to live, but to have, you know, life have any kind of meaning, um, you have to be thinking in a community oriented situation. Yeah. I mean, because ultimately, you know, what's the difference between two weeks or two months worth of food? Right. You know, it's going to be gone. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to uh, come back. You know, one of the things in in researching uh, for this uh, for this book, one of the things I looked at was the the history of how we made a living uh, and the, the history of agriculture. And one of the things that 
you know, that I found was that the last time that humans lived where a significant portion of the population was uh, hunters and gatherers, that is not farmers, there was like one fifteenth of the current population, you know, less than 500 million people Mm -hmm. in the world. So even a, a catastrophic disaster that, you know, reduced us to 85% of, you know, or 15% of current population, we're still going to have more people in the world than ever lived without mm-hmm. agriculture. And so we're going to have to uh, uh, recreate some of these systems. And, you know, agriculture by and large is going to be a community-based yeah. system. It's, uh, I mean, you can garden on your own, but, uh, but the way that it needs to work is, is going to be a collective. Yeah, and I I think um yeah this is we talk a lot about I actually live with a couple of wilderness survival instructors and we have about an acre of land and we do a decent amount of 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 you know gardening you know uh, animal husbandry and that sort of thing and it it is um I've I've spent a lot of my life on farms so I've kind of always had an appreciation for how much work it is and and one of the things we try to talk about on this show regularly is the value of even just having a garden of things like guerrilla gardening, not because I'm not one of those people who thinks that like, oh, we need to replace industrial agriculture with like individuals tending small gardens. That's not going to work. But because the more you kind of interface directly with the concept of growing food and with working with other people in order to do that, the more prepared you are for any number of things that could go wrong. Like even if those things don't involve a crunch in the food supply lines, the connections you make with people doing that sort of work will be more valuable than an extra two months of stockpiles, you know, in your, in your food buckets or whatever, your Alex Jones yeah. dried food buckets. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to me looking into the past uh, at some of these, uh, you know, collapses or declines that had happened in the past was that a huge percent of the population um, uh, was engaged directly in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here in the, it, well, in the industrialized world is typically less than 5%, less than that even in the United States. Most people like me don't, uh, uh, don't engage in it. And, you know, I know something about gardening, perhaps like everybody else, but, you know, I'm not a farmer. I don't mm-hmm. really have that collective wisdom. And if I had to do that, um, you know, Probably it's like a lot of other things. When everything's easy, it's not so bad. Yeah. When, yeah. It, goes, when it goes bad, it really helps to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, everything goes bad sooner or later. And so, um, you know, that's that kind of uh, uh, thing's very important. You know, and I think also uh, there could certainly local systems and uh, some flexible scale would be really important. You know, so I'm also like you, a proponent of, mm-hmm. of of this sort of thing. You know, if we can get everybody to participate in ways that we aren't now, that'll give us some flexibility. What if what if we do have supply chain problems? Mm-hmm. Well, we have a number of people in the community that are already doing some of this stuff that could maybe be uh, expanded or get us through this period. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, even if you're not like dealing with everyone's caloric needs, it could be as simple as because of where you're located, you know, when when the oranges and other kind of fruits aren't able to come in from a supply line thing, there's a, a shortage of vitamin C. And then knowing how to yeah. make tea out of pine needles or whatever, or what kind of plants have a lot of vitamin C, 
you know, even though you're not you're not focused on meeting everyone's you know entire caloric needs through small scale farming, but you can deal with a, a nutrient deficiency or something because you understand your environment a little bit better. Yeah, and and you know probably quality of life issues too. Yeah. I mean, you know, for uh, you know kids and uh, you know there's there's lots of there's lots of ways you can survive that are pretty miserable. Yeah. So you you want to. You want to try to uh, uh, direct it towards those that are desirable. And I think part of that's having this flexibility, having this knowledge, having a lot of people involved in things. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in, in, in my book are ideas of, you know, diversity and inclusion, which we talk about in certain ways now. And often, I think, unfortunately, it's talked about as if it's done to benefit the people that are marginalized and left out uh, only. And Mm -hmm. while it is partly that, it benefits everybody, of course. I mean, anyone in a business knows, anybody in a university knows uh, the the benefits of of, uh, diversity. In the same way, anybody that's trying to do something understands the benefit of a diverse range of experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why we make these multidisciplinary teams that go out and do things. Uh, you know, it's so that you have this this wide variety that, that can help you keep going. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I really found fascinating in your book, and that that kind of made me feel a little bit um, bad, is I you know I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about the what happened, what was done to, and what also just kind of happened as a result of the way diseases spread when when colonizers reached North America. I had never really devoted that much thought to the actual actions that in different indigenous groups took consciously to prevent to protect themselves from the spread of diseases. You mentioned the Cherokee in particular um, in your book. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's something, as soon as I read it, I marked that page because I'm like, I need to look up what the studies he's referencing because I, I, I don't know anything about this. Yeah, that, um, you know, a lot of that stems from the research of, of some other archaeologists and they, um, you know, you're exactly right. We don't think about that. We're not taught about it that way. You know, we sort of have this, this contradictory and sort of uh, um, uh, doubly problematic way of talking about this. First, for a long time, we denied uh, sort of the, the how traumatic and, and how much of a genocide it was when Europeans uh, arrived. Um, and then after denying that, mm-hmm. we sort of say, well, Native Americans are gone and no longer mm-hmm. relevant, so we can cease to talk about them. Uh, of course, uh, that's not true. And one of the things that we see when we look more in detail at the histories or we listen to the oral histories or we look at the archaeology is that there are a number of things that uh, that that people did and do to um, uh, uh, to create the outcomes that they want. And that was no different for the Native American groups. You know, I mean, they had ways of dealing with disease and some of them will be, uh, will be able to understand it via our sort of uh, our system, right? Isolating people, uh, cleanliness, uh, minimizing contact, especially with sort of problematic groups like the colonizers. 
you know, but in other ways, there are things that are going to be uh, unfamiliar to us, and we're not going to see the effectiveness or the value in it. But one of the things that that all of these things did that these groups were doing was created uh, or maintained um, uh, group identity and cohesion and uh, allowed the perseverance of, of community. And so there are, um, you know, it's, it's easy to think about people as sort of passive victims of something, especially uh, when it serves your purpose to, to think about it in these ways. And we just see that it's, it's not the case. Yeah, there was a remarkable moment in the book, and I, I think it was from when you were in Honduras, where you you talk about you're finding pottery sherds, and they have these specific kind of markings on them from, I don't know, like a thousand years ago or so. And you also know a local woman who's a potter, and she's putting the same markings on, and you ask her why, and her answer is like, well, because the, the pottery sherds that we find from our ancestors have those on them. And my, my initial thought was like, oh... What what a shame that she doesn't know what those originally meant. But then I thought like, well, but is that any different from like all of the different things that that I do because they're traditions, because like they're things that like people a thousand years ago in, in, in my line did? Like, no, it's not. Like it's it's just what people do. And it is a continuation. And it's a very there's um that's a that's that's survival, you know? That's that's conscious survival. Yeah, yeah, and, and in that case, of course, whatever it meant initially, it now means that to her, mm-hmm. right? So there's the meaning, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so it, it's it's interesting. You know, one of the things, you know, I, I'm from and I live in Kentucky, and one of the things, especially when uh, people come to say Appalachians, they're looking mm-hmm. for sort of authentic. Appalachian, Kentucky. Sure. You know, um, and they already have an idea of what that is. And if you don't see it because that's not really what people do, then the response is never, oh, my ideas about what is authentic Mm -hmm. might be erroneous. It's, I wonder why I didn't see authentic Appalachians. You know, it's like, well, you did, but, you know, there's going to be more hip hop and punk groups than there are bluegrass groups because you know these are 18 20 year old kids that's you know they're doing this as much as this other stuff and um, uh, you know more probably and so that that is something uh, um, that that I think of often as an archaeologist you know my focus is in the past but if I'm going to understand things, of course, you also have to understand how are people thinking about it in the present and how am I thinking about it in the present? Because, you know, uh, everything, all the stories I tell about the past are coming out of are coming out of my experience in the present, too. Mm. And it's hard to uh, it's hard to separate those. And really, the best we can do is try to um, you know, reflect on that and see. How is it that I might be limiting my understanding because of my particular experience? And, and one of the things I really like about your book that I also found fascinating. So, so I, you know, I, I for a while did um, conflict journalism, and before, when when that was just a an ambition of mine, before I started to do it, I would see the articles that were being written by all these war correspondents, and I would just be in awe of like. How did they get that story? How did they get that access? How did they? They must have put so much work in. And then when I actually got there, I realized like, oh no, 
they met they made a contact with a local who was good at it and that person showed them around and made all these connections and like actually none of this work happens without these local fixers and you yeah. make the point that in archaeology you're not generally discovering things like even when you're finding shipwrecks it's because these sailors who lived nearby were like well yeah there are a bunch of shipwrecks over there <laughs> like yeah this is yeah. where you're going to go find them you know it's yeah. always the way it is you know mm-hmm. they're um um <clears throat> In the example you're talking about, I was part of this project in Fournee in Greece, which you know made the news because we found so many shipwrecks there. Mm-hmm. Something ultimately like 50 shipwrecks wow. around this island, um, and almost all of them were shown to us by local folks, uh, you know, that sponge divers or uh, people that were fishers, or, you know, people that were out on the water all the time. And the few that we found by ourselves, I'm sure people knew about them. We just stumbled on them before somebody had a chance to, to show us. It's the same way in, in Honduras when mm-hmm. we would be walking through the, the rainforest. And, you know, maybe we'd been walking for a week. So we're way out in the middle of this place. People were constantly telling me, the guys that I was with would say, okay, if we go up this creek, you know, for about six hours and we go over here, here's what we'd find. Here's what we'd find over here. Here's what we'd find over here. They knew where everything was. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that you, uh, 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 the, that you learn is, you know, how reliant you are on, on, on people that live in a place. I mean, they just know it. Yeah, there's no um when you get right down to it as as obsessed as we are kind of in in the western canon with the idea of lost cities. Um that's not really a thing that tends to happen. Um Yeah. No. No, um, no it's not. And and in fact most of the archaeological sites that people didn't know about it was just because they were so small and ephemeral that no one mm-hmm. really paid attention. Anything. Yeah, there's no lost city. Mm-hmm. They're they're always known to somebody. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, high five casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High five, high five. Casino, casino. Win at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the 
world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian. Premium cocktails on demand. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Well, Chris, I think that's that's most of what I wanted to get into in this conversation. I'm wondering before we kind of close out, because you you are both the author of this book, The Next Apocalypse, which is, I think, a fascinating way of looking at the idea of things falling apart and a wilderness survival instructor. Mm -hmm. If you're going to suggest people, you know, a a practical kit bag to prepare for short and kind of long term problems, what are you what are you putting in your bag? Well, you know, there's the two main things uh, that you're always going to want is is uh, a knife because that mm-hmm. allows you to make a lot of other things and a way to start fire. You know, and we've all seen in the movies rubbing sticks together and, you know, friction methods and that works. Yeah. And you can do that, but it is incredibly difficult yeah, to do. pain in the butt. <laughs> you know, and for most of us that don't do it all the time. Uh, you're just not going to be able to do it when it's 40 degrees and raining and you really need a fire, you know, you'll be able to do it when it's a hundred degrees and dry, you know, uh, because everything's about to catch on fire anyway. But, uh, you know, so, um, and what would, what would that look like? Well, uh, you need something that will catch on fire pretty quickly. And the thing I always takes cotton balls, you know, if you take cotton balls and a disposable lighter, or one of those uh, uh, fire starter sticks that'll make sparks, um, That those cotton balls will catch fire instantly. And if you take one and you coat half of it with petroleum jelly, then not only will it catch fire, it'll burn, you know, for, you know, a minute or so long enough to catch other stuff on fire. So, you know, making fire and having some sort of cutting tool are the very basic things, but, um you know, the, um, uh, beyond that, I would say, uh, you know, clothing or some sort of shelter is, is the other thing, you know, exposure to elements will kill you quicker than anything. And so, uh, having some way to, uh, to protect yourself. And that's usually going to be, you know, first line of defense going to be your clothes, and one of the things that that you'll know, uh, anybody that that deals with uh, sort of survival uh, situations, is that most people that really get in trouble with things like hypothermia, 
you know, it's not when it's 30 degrees below and they're out doing something. It's when it's 50 degrees and sunny and they're out in a T-shirt during the day. And then at night it drops to 30 degrees and, uh, you know, they're stuck out somewhere uh, with without proper clothing. That's that is when things get really dangerous. So, you know, I would say, you know, if you can have some way to start fire, some sort of knife and appropriate clothes for spending the night out, you know, then, then, uh, and you're probably in pretty good shape for most situations. Well, Chris, thank you so much for talking with with us today. Chris Begley, underwater archaeologist, author of The Next Apocalypse, The Art of Science and Survival. Chris, is there anything you'd like else you'd like to say or kind of get into before we, we close out for the day? No, just thank you very much for, uh, for reading the book and for uh, reaching out to talk with me because I think that, you know, especially now as we go into sort of an uncertain uh, future, I mean, future is always uncertain, I suppose, but uh, um, as, you know, we're really recognizing some of these challenges, you know, I, I really am hoping that this sort of um, uh, uh, community-based idea uh, becomes the way we think about things. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean it's easy or that we're going to like it. It doesn't mean that that's what I want. I mean, tell you the truth, I would love it if it was just me out in the woods with my family. You know, I can do that. It's much harder to be part of a community and make things work for a big group of people, but that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. And that's you know? that's ultimately the way in which you have a lot more real security because I, I yeah. think, um, uh, I think people, I don't know, the, 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 the world seems so complex and messy that it's easy to imagine that, that safety comes from getting away from the world. But historically, yeah. that's just not how it works. No, the world finds you, you know, yeah. uh, the best being part of a group is, is always best. And your, uh, your little group can never defend against the big group. I mean, if we want to put it in those terms, you know, you can't just hoard everything and uh, um, just doesn't work. Might work for a little while, but uh, yeah. So that, you know, that for me, that's the message I'm hoping uh, uh, people take from it. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, For those of you listening at home, again, please do check out The Next Apocalypse, The Art and Science of Survival by Chris Begley. That's going to do it for us all today. Chris, thank you again, and have a wonderful day. Hey, you too. Thank you, Rob. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Whoa! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment 
entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Happy Pride. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. I'm here to tell you about Lambda Legal. For more than 50 years, Lambda Legal has been in court protecting the civil rights of LGBTQ plus people and everyone living with HIV. And the good news is you can help. Support Lambda Legal's work by donating this Pride Month. Throughout June, all donations up to $100,000 will be matched. To donate, go to lambdalegal.org. That's L-A-M-B-D-A legal.org. Help Lambda Legal remain unstoppable. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. 